0: Chan
1: Chronicles, Venerable Master Xuen life and legacy kept alive through stories told by his senior disciples. In this episode, Reverend Hung Shur takes us back to the very beginnings of Buddhism in China, providing a context for how and why these teachings made their way to and through Master Hua.
0: They say that every Chinese, if you ask them, what religion are you, they'll they'll say, well, every religion has something good in it, why reject one when, when they're all beneficial? When I am in society, I'm Confucian. It gives me a strong sense of how to behave among people. It's an ethical perspective. So it's rules for society and for the country and for the world. When I'm on on the weekends, I go out on the mountains, I go backpacking, and I'm a Taoist. I just feel at one with the mountains around me and the oceans and the tea in my cup and the sound of the wind and the leaves, and Taoism has much to offer. But you know, when I look at the troubles in my life, when I want to understand suffering, When I want to deeply experience joy uh, in things that are beyond material, beyond wind and water, and beyond humanity, I'm a Buddhist. So they say every Chinese wears a Confucian hat, Taoist sandals, and a Buddhist robe. So it's being a Chinese in this context is, is the original interfaith experience.
1: I'm your host, Fabrizio Albarico. Don't forget to check out our website, dharmaradio.org, for useful links, inspiring music, and additional information on the many organizations that carry on Master Hua's legacy. Today we are coming to you from the dining hall at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, where if you first walk into the dining hall... If you look straight ahead of you, you'll see a giant portrait of a Chinese monk named Master Xinhua. And I'm here with Reverend Hong Shur who's going to help us create a context around who this person was and what Chan Buddhism means. But I was wondering if we could back up quite a bit and talk about Buddhism in general and how it left India and made its way to places like Burma and eventually China. And I'm curious as to what kind of cultural flavors it adopted as it moved through these different countries, particularly in China.
0: Right. Master Shenhua is is um, the founder of the Dharma Realm Buddhist Association and is the, uh, uh, the teacher that I followed in religion as a monastic now for four decades. Um, he, is, he represents the Chan lineage, the Chan line, in a larger school called the Mahayana, also known as the Northern Tradition. And if you imagine uh, a map, let's say the map is, has India in the center instead of your city or your state or your country, think of India in the center. And if you look down at the southeastern corner of India, kind of where New Orleans would be in a map of the U.S., you'll find Sri Lanka. And it used to be known as Salon. And the historical Buddha, our, our Buddha, the Buddha, Shakyamuni, the Prince of India at the time, this is five centuries before the Common Era, five centuries before Jesus and all. If you, Buddhism, while the Buddha had uh, had just entered Nirvana for a couple centuries, Buddhism had already traveled down to Sri Lanka, to Ceylon at the time. So Ceylon, Sri Lanka got Buddhism first after the Buddha's demise. but. Very quickly, because of sea trade and such, Buddhism spread from India and Sri Lanka on to, um, to the countries of Southeast Asia, to Burma, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, places like that. And that tradition, that line of teaching, which had its own texts and its own monastics, its own sangha, its own community of, of uh, full-time devotees, that Tradition has now come to the West, largely through Europe. Uh, So that's the Theravada, the tradition of the elders. And it's ably represented by Western monks and Western nuns worldwide. So let's bring back that image, that map of India. And largely because of the Silk Route, um, not exclusively, but, but much because of the Silk Route, people also traveled east from India instead of south to Sri Lanka and around, they traveled from India if you're looking at down at the map that would be to the right across the uh, deserts, across the Himalayas, the snowy mountains through Afghanistan, sometimes north and then east, and they wound up in the far west of China along the Silk Route and then on to Chang'an, which was the currently known as Xi'an in, in the province of Jiangxi in China. And that was That Buddhism, that flavor of Buddhism, uh, then perpetuated through China to Vietnam, and then further north to Korea, and then across to Japan, and it went to Manchuria, and it went to Mongolia, and it went to Tibet. That became known as the Mahayana, the northern tradition, and that tradition is represented now all over the world, also in the West. So... I'm gonna bring everybody's imagination back to India one more time and there was a third flavor of Buddhism that went north uh, from India to Nepal and then on to Tibet and this became known as either the Tibetan Mahayana as some Tibetans prefer other people call it the Vajrayana the diamond vehicle so we have Theravada going south we have Mahayana Going east to east to East Asia, and then we have Buddhism going north to the the, the Diamond Vehicle, the Tibetan Mahayana. Um, in China, they call that Lamaism often. So it's also known as the Secret School from the Chinese perspective. So okay, now let's think about it. In the West, what do we have? Um, if you consider America, for example, North America, a Judeo-Christian country. So what do we have? We've got Judaism, we have Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism, two flavors of Christianity, and then you could also say uh, Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox uh, Catholics, Eastern Catholics. So in that same way, three divisions. So if Judaism is holding the Hebrew Scriptures, the Torah, the the uh, oldest section of the Bible, and then... Protestants and Catholics are largely uh, motivated by the Gospels, then you have that same kind of, uh, more or less, that same kind of orientation in Buddhism. The Theravada would be holding an older strain with Pali, P-A-L-I as the language. And then the Mahayana came with Sanskrit, another Indian language, over to China, Korea, and Japan, and then further north. So kind of a similar. That's another way to think about it. So how are we doing? This is I'm giving you a, a, a imaginary geography of, of the travels of Buddhism. But interestingly, each of those strains has now planted itself in the West.
1: But before it planted itself in the West, it planted itself in China. When Buddhism came to China, what did it encounter in terms of existing practices right. and existing cultural context that it right, uh, was right. influenced by?
0: Okay, well, uh, as... Pretty much every country of the world has its own indigenous uh, traditions, indigenous practices. Uh, North America had its own Native American traditions, spirituality, and it's very uh, well articulated and rooted in nature. So too China had Taoism. And yet Taoism was not alone in China. China was a spiritually very active place, is to this day. And it also had a Confucian perspective that was more human-centered than nature-centered. But Taoism was man, humanity, and nature. And it explained things in terms of yin and yang, in terms of the five elements. And very. uh, most Chinese are profoundly influenced by Taoism. So here we have what, from the point of view of the Chinese, in the, let's say, around the Han Dynasty, which was the, the time when Jesus was active in the Middle East, we had these accounts of Chinese Taoists and Confucians saying this foreign Indian import is un-Chinese, meaning Buddhism. So when Buddhism arrived, it didn't have an immediate uh, warm reception from, from the Chinese. It was adopted largely by the intellectuals in the court who could read the sutras, who met the monks who were carrying them, who were almost all exclusively Indian, or from the trade routes countries, Khotan and Sogdia and places like that. So, um, also from Iran, very interestingly. There's a strong strain in China of monks who picked it up in what was then Persia from India. So, um, bit by bit, the first largely men, not so many women at this point, um, who brought Buddhism from India, they... um, uh, brought these very strange uh, texts, different languages, different customs, but there was enough overlap with the uh, existing Taoist practices, particularly meditation, that the Chinese paid attention. And somehow the, the stories of the Buddha and the compassion of the Bodhisattvas, one particularly is Guan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, who looks very much like the Blessed Virgin. She was an immediate hit. In uh, in China, and so the they say now, you know, looking at the perspective of two thousand years, looking back at the Buddhism's advent in China, they say that every Chinese, if you ask them, what religion are you? They'll they'll say, well, every religion has something good in it. Why reject one when when they're all beneficial? When I am in society, I'm Confucian. It gives me a strong sense of how to behave among people. It's an ethical perspective. So it's rules for society and for the country and for the world. When I'm on on the weekends, I go out on the mountains, I go backpacking, and I'm a Taoist. I just feel at one with the mountains around me and the oceans and the tea in my cup and the sound of the wind and the leaves, and Taoism has much to offer. But you know, uh, when I look at the troubles in my life, when I want to understand suffering, when I want to deeply experience joy uh, in things that are beyond material, beyond wind and water, and beyond humanity, I'm a Buddhist. So they say every Chinese wears a Confucian hat, uh, Taoist sandals and a Buddhist robe, they say. So it's kind of being a Chinese in this context is is the original interfaith experience. So what did, what grew from what came from the Indians? Well, if you, if you ask most Americans right now, you say, tell me about a kind of Buddhism that you know about. They'll probably, Zen won't be too far away. They'll probably, mindfulness will be second. But for a long time, all we knew about Buddhism was Zen. Because during the time of the 50s and 60s, there was enough Americans seeking wisdom who went to Japan, I'm thinking Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso and, and Philip Whelan and the Beatniks, went to Japan, discovered Zen, Z-E-N, and brought it back and romanticized it and taught meditation a little bit. And so we knew about Zen. But Zen is the Japanese pronunciation of Chan, C-H-A-N. And Chan was a real... Chinese contribution to the flow of Buddhism through the world. And it was the encounter with Taoism, as you mentioned, that turned Indian Buddhism into Chinese Buddhism. Chan Buddhism did not exist in Japan as such. It was that blend of Taoism and nature and that deep looking into the heart of what it meant to be a human that produced Chan. Chan went to Japan and became Zen, went to Korea and became Son, And uh, here in the West, we're experimenting with mindfulness, so that's kind of a straight line through that uh, the Chinese brand on Buddhism had to do with Chan. (laughs) Many Americans or Westerners uh, are surprised when they go back now in the 21st century to Buddhist Asia, let's say Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, China itself, and they go looking for meditation. They don't find many people meditating. What they find are very large Buddha images and halls with benches where everybody is bowing to the Buddha, holding beads in their hand and reciting the Buddha's name. So it's no exaggeration to say that the dominant practice in Buddhist Asia right now is devotion. It's focused on the Buddha Amitabha and the Pure Land teaching, which is a story that arose largely in China, uh, not so much in India, although the roots are there, um, and became the practice that everybody, the story within Buddhism that everybody adheres to the vows of the Buddha Amitabha, and his pure land in the West. So many people are surprised that, that uh, Buddhism has, gee whiz, here's this Buddha who looks kind of like a deity figure, kind of like a god. And I know many wounded Catholics, for example, uh, left Catholicism because they were uncomfortable with this patriarchal Old Testament god. And when they come to Buddhism, devotional Buddhism, pure land, worship they find Amitabha looking <laughs> very similar to that like wait a minute where am I I thought I was coming to Buddhism and, and here are these people bowing and reciting the name of a, a male you know religious authority so kind mm-hmm. of it's a little bit uh, you need to know more if you can understand how the Mahayana developed in China mm-hmm. and so that that would be my next question
1: is how did it develop its own distinct flavor that is more about the pure land and maybe you can explain what this Western Pure Land means okay, um, sure. and give us a bit of a timeline as to how and when that developed right. uh, to take us up into the time that Master Hua appears.
0: Because Buddhism has these uh, different lineages, different schools, different families, um, if you go to the Theravada tradition, if you go down to if you go to Bangkok or to the, uh, up to the Isan in northeast Thailand where the forest monks are at home, the disciples of Ajahn Chah and others. If you say, tell me about Amitabha and the Pure Land in the West, they'll say, never heard of him. We don't teach that. So, okay, well, if you go to the Tibetan tradition, you say, I want to know about Amitabha, they'll say, oh, he is, yes, he's uh, one of the Adi Buddhas. He's, uh, he's not more important than any other. He's one of the many Buddhas that you'll find, you know, in the stellium here and in the Pantheon. But they don't. we don't emphasize him. But when you go to Vietnam, when you go to Korea, when you go to Japan, when you go to China, everybody's going Namo Omi Tofo. Namo Omi topho. In Japan, it's Namo Mi Da, and, Namo mi da in, in Vietnam, it's Namo Omi and that's Canton. My Vietnamese are terrible. But everybody's reciting the Buddha's name. And uh, so how did this happen? From the Mahayana's point of view, here's how the story goes. And I say it that way just to say this is a story that is not confirmed by the other traditions. But within the Mahayana, this is the story, which is, you say, the Buddha at one point in his 49-year teaching career, this is historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, called the monks together and said, um, I'm going to tell you now about something that you didn't even know enough to ask me about. He said, Every time I give a talk, you request, right? They have a dharma requests. They say the Buddha is the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching is not spoken without a request. People have to ask for the, the teachings before they start to flow, with one exception. The Buddha said, Okay, there was a monk whose name was Fa Zhang and he was uh, dharmakara was his name in many worlds systems ago many eons of time ago and he said what i want to do is i want to make a place where suffering ends where there is no birth old age sickness or death or rebirth that doesn't exist there are no hells there are no ghost realms there are no animal realms that's what I want to do and he, with that in mind he set himself to practice and he started to cultivate and he started, that's the jargon term meaning he began to all the different forms of practice and every bit of goodness that he created through his practice he dedicated to the creation in the future of this paradise and he gave it a name, he called it Sukhavati which is utmost happiness, the land of ultimate bliss they called it where there's no suffering. His vows, he made 48 vows. Don't ask me why 48, but that's the number. He made 48 vows, and every vow had to do with, if you want to be born in this pure land at death, simply recite my name and say, I want to be born in the pure land of Amitabha. So that's the story. Mm. And there were three particular teachings, three sutras, in which the Buddha... Uh, detailed the vows of Amitabha, and it's interesting because historically these sutras didn't come out right away. If you, uh, if you look historically into Chinese Buddhist history, the Tang Dynasty was the time, they call it the golden age of Chinese Buddhism, and it was from the seventh to the tenth century. 600 uh, something to 900 something was when it ended. During that time If you went looking for Amitabha, you wouldn't find it. The primary practice then was focused on the Buddha Maitreya, which is doubly confusing. You know, how could that be? But after the Tang Dynasty, Amitabha's, like some scholars call it the cult of Amitabha, became the dominant practice. So then, on through the Song Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty, the Qing Dynasty, with the Mongols in between, it became the form of practice. So when we get to the 20th century, everybody recites the Buddha's name. To pin it down, in the, the end of the Tang Dynasty in the city of Hangzhou, which was a major East Coast uh, center of Buddhist practice and commerce in China, it's said that there were 900 monasteries. The Buddhism was so popular, it had all the strength of the emperor behind it. You know. So 900 monasteries, and of those 900 monasteries, 850 were Chan monasteries. Mm. People meditated. Did they recite the Buddha's name? No, 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 they did not. They were strictly Chan monasteries. And if you come 300 years later, you're at the, the beginnings of the, the Ming dynasty, the 1500s, right? There, they said that everybody was practicing dual practice reciting the Buddha's name, and meditating. So in that time, these rival schools merged, and the the name of Maitreya disappeared, and the name of Amitabha replaced it. Hmm. So that's a historical phenomenon that people are scratching their heads. Why was, what happened to Maitreya? Why did his worship vanish? And how come the story that the Buddha told without request suddenly came to be the dominant one? I have a theory I don't know, you'd have to I should maybe write this up somewhere and see if I can get any traction in the world of scholarship. Mm-hmm. But, um, why would somebody want to be reborn in a land where suffering ends? I think it's because life in China was full of suffering. Uh, first of all, the, uh, for context, America, think 1776, America hasn't even been here 300 years. The Tang Dynasty itself was half again that long, you know. So with all the changes in Chinese history that have come along for, sometimes people say 5,000 years, as a, uh, that the Chinese have been using the same language and they have living in the same place. 5,000 years, America doesn't have 300. Right? So over that time, uh, dynasties have come and gone. Battles have been won and lost. Uh, cataclysmic changes have happened in China. You just think of the victory in 1949 of the communists, you know, as a, another, yet another big, major change in China. And in that time, they say, if you were an ordinary Chinese, mostly you were a farmer, because most people were busy growing their own food. It was an agrarian society. So, the life of a Chinese farmer, what happened? Well, the Yellow River overflowed its banks flood ruined your crops suffering right then there was a drought everything baked suffering then you had a good crop but the locusts the yellow insects the huang chong the locusts flew in and ate every green living thing more suffering you start then the emperor came through and took your sons for his army a lot of suffering right then the tax man came through and took half of your crop for a tax because the local landlord you know, demanded it. Then after that, the bandits came through, and they burned everything and took away all the women and and uh, broke your leg and took your horse, you know, and, and so a lot of suffering. So over the long historical span of Chinese history, there's been a lot of misery, a lot of suffering. And if that's what you know, that life is nasty, brutish, and short, hearing the story of a pure land sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. So... The story went that at the end of your life if you had recited the Buddha's name and the sutras that told his, this story, you would be reborn in the Pure Land from a lotus flower and your karma purified. And the lotus flower opens and here's Amitabha and eight bodhisattvas who welcome you and life is really good. The birds speak the Dharma, the water in that, in that land is nutritious and nourishing and healing. And uh, you cultivate together with wholesome friends, you know. Sounded pretty good, Mm -hmm. so people reached for it. Now, that's my theory, that it had to do with the realities of Chinese life, that the pure land made sense. And, of course, the monks who told the story had to be believable or else you wouldn't buy it. Mm-hmm. So here in America, now it's the 21st century, when uh, you try to talk about the pure land, it's a hard sell because America has many 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 things available to dull the reality of life. We reach for our credit cards, we reach for Netflix, right? We reach for a Tylenol, we reach for alcohol or any some kind of intoxicating substance to postpone to soften or to delay the onset of misery and suffering. We have many ways to escape that. In China, none of those are available. So Mm -hmm. that story of Western land of ultimate bliss sounded really good.
1: Can you give us a sense of the the actual reality of life in China when Master Hua was born. Was it
0: 1918? He was born in 1918, so next year will be his centennial. He was a Manchurian farmer's son. I've actually been to uh, the area where he was born in Heilongjiang, Black Dragon River, a place called Twin Cities County, Shuangchengxian. And uh, definitely it's rich farming land, lots of corn, lots of sorghum, lots of crops that fed the rest of China up in northern Manchuria. Very cold in the winter, very hot in the summer, fertile and temperate. And like Master Hua's generation, uh, so the early, the the second decade of the 20th century, um, that was the last of what was called the imperial examination system. How the Chinese created their government, staffed their government was, they had these tests, and the tests were designed to create public servants. If you could pass the tests, and they often had to do with memorizing the Confucian classics, if you could spit back the classics from memory and you, you could write, you could write poetry, you could write essays, then you would not only rise up, be useful in the government, but your entire family, your clan. That was the path to status and to uh, power in China was to be learned. So Master Hua, being a farmer's kid, had no money to go to school. He was in the 95% of the Chinese populace that could only make their own, grow their own food. So what did he do? He valued education. So he memorized the Chinese classics anyway and started his own free school. He was an educator from the start and he was the teacher at age 16 of all his neighborhood friends who didn't have his uh, gumption, his, his uh, vigor to go out and dig his way through the, the Chinese classics. So he memorized them and by golly, I have heard him recite for seemingly endlessly. Just at, at age 60, when I met Master Hua, he could recite the Confucian classics t- just without a flaw at that age so that was that was life and uh he would have had a normal arc of he would have gone on to either to be a farmer or to leave the fields and go to the city go to Harbin the big city or Beijing to try to find his way but what happened was he saw on the road the corpse of a baby that had died maybe of starvation or maybe of disease and had been left by the side of the road and uh ask an uncle what that was and his uncle said well that's death and who dies well everyone dies and I mean I will too so that the reality of his mortality was what kind of spurred him into an interest in transcending that put his feet on the path Mm -hmm. so that was was the world and he had uh, I think he was the youngest of six kids and he was a very filial child he really connected his mother's uh, care and compassion to his well-being. So he uh, he was known as a, the filial son Bai from the Bai family. And uh, when his mother, interestingly enough, uh, he did something which was pretty outrageous even in China, much more so in America. When his mother died, he was 19. And in, after the funeral, instead of going back home and continuing his life, he stayed by her graveside he built a, a little a-frame hut to keep the wind off and said I'll stay here and keep her company for three years that's what a filial son should do because she sacrificed much to raise me and I would like to pay back that debt of kindness mm. of course his siblings said oh come on crazy come on come on down and you know we'll see you tonight we'll have some we'll warm up some cider for you and uh He didn't come back he stayed there by her grave and was was he a monk already by this no he was not he was just uh he was a young man and uh he fulfilled his wish he stayed there for three years and during that time after a year and a half or so he went down to the local monastery and became a buddhist ordained and then he went back and got his head shaved and became a monk Mm. so he spent three years by his mother's grave and of course, zoning being what it was in the farming community, nobody bothered him. Can you imagine trying that in a local cemetery here in California? You'd probably mm-hmm. <laughs> be arrested before the night you know before the night fell so mm-hmm. but yeah that was that was um uh, uh, the the world around him and he he had a another quality which was he loved anybody who could talk about the dao and the dao is not dow dow jones average you know up 3 points today the standard and poor's index you know not that not that dao it's the d a o meaning translated into english as the way or the path and here's how he explained it from the first day that i heard him talk all the way to his last day the Tao is not you don't realize the Tao through some sort of gymnastics you can't buy your way into the Tao you don't get there because it's the property of some class of people like a priest class who hand it to you you the door to the Tao opens through goodness through generosity through kindness through the heart through the things that, that bring humanity to its very best expression. That's where the Tao. So Master Hua would say, well, the smart ones walk right by me because uh, I look too stupid to them. But you only approach the Tao through goodness. That really appealed to me. And I could see when he would talk about it that there was there was something alive there. So sagehood... Um, is a quality of heart I don't know if Western culture has a a role model who is admired because of his or her goodness we kind of do we say Mother Teresa you know would be Mm -hmm. one she's self-sacrificing servant to the poor to the sick that is okay St. Francis you know with animals and his radical poverty and uh, the Pope I guess the Holy Father is considered to be so good you know but where goodness reaches a spiritual saintlihood, that's where the Tao goes. And notice the overlap with Taoism. But it's not the it's funny because the word Tao is shared in common by Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. Hmm. The Tao is this underlying strata. So Master Hua he said, whenever anybody came through my Territory within 50 miles, I would be sitting in the front row listening to every word they said. Whenever anybody came through who was preaching, if there was any kind of miracle worker, any kind of preacher, any kind of shaman, or even the, the, the shady ones, the, the, the snake oil salesman, if anybody claimed to be teaching the Tao or preaching, he said, I would walk 60 miles to hear them. I was always in the front row because I loved people explaining and exploring the Tao. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's a quality of this teacher that that, uh, really drew him to me. Mm -hmm. Drew me to him, that is to say.
1: And that concludes this episode of Chan Chronicles. My thanks to Reverend Hung Shur and the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery for their gracious hospitality. Do check out dharmaradio.org for much more, and be sure to hit subscribe on your podcast purveyor of choice, so you'll be sure to receive the latest Chan Chronicles as soon as they become available. Amitofo.